Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Tyson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Colorado, Denver, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor, Robert Talese, and Alexis McLeod. Together we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Fanny Soderbach, Associate Professor of Philosophy at DePaul University. Her book, Revolutionary Time, on Time and Difference in Kristeva and Arigre is just out from SUNY Press. What is the relationship between time and sexual difference? Are the categories of linearity and circularity that have so dominated conceptions of time sufficient for the emancipatory aims of feminist theory and practice? In Revolutionary Time, on Time and Difference in Kristeva and Arigre, Soderbach engages the work of Julia Kristeva and Lucy Rigre to argue that neither linear nor circular models of time make change possible. Only through returning to and revitalizing the past can we enliven the present in ways that make a new future possible. Time and sexual difference, she argues, must be thought together. Fanny Soderbach, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. Please tell us a bit about yourself and your background as a philosopher and how you came to write a book on time. Yeah, so so again, my name is Fanny, um, and um, I I did my PhD in philosophy at the New School for Social Research. Um, but previously, I had done um, work in Sweden. I'm from Sweden originally, um, so I had studied literature mostly and gender studies, and then sort of by by chance, I ended up doing philosophy for random life reasons. <laughs> um, but at the New School, basically, this book is sort of a, a thoroughly revised version of the dissertation that I wrote at the New School. Um, and I actually came to the New School thinking that I was going to write a dissertation about eating disorders. Um, but uh, some way into that project, it became clear that that was not what I wanted to do at the time. Um, and so it sort of morphed into this project. Um, I knew I wanted to work on Christé Van Irigray. I had been working in French feminism for a while. Um, but at that particular point, because I was concerned ultimately with questions about political change and political activism and various sort of subversive practices, for lack of a better uh, word, um, I kind of realized that I had just taken a lot of concepts for granted in writing and thinking about change. And that one of them was time and and what sort of temporal um, structure or framework would actually allow for change in the first place. And so that became the beginning of a project uh, to sort of rewind and go all the way back to the conceptual roots and ask, okay, for there to be political change, feminist change, uh, what are the temporal structures needed uh, for that to happen? And so I decided to write about time and temporality, and specifically time for change, a time that would make possible change. Um, 
so that's kind of how I came to it and ended up being uh, a project that I worked on for over 10 years <laughs> before it uh, actually came out as a book. So it's been with me for way too long. Hmm. Um, well, it's interesting because you really in the book motivate the idea that there's not really a way to theorize or philosophize sexual difference, but through a philosophy of time. Um, and so it's interesting that for you, the account you just gave is that you came to time through this desire to, to think through concepts you had been taking for granted and this idea of change. Um, so will you just talk a little bit about that relationship between maybe what feminism in time or sexual difference in time? Yeah, um, sure. Why time? Why time? The title of the opening section in my book. Um, so... The two epigraphs that I have um, opening the section titled Why Time might be the beginning of an answer to your question. Um, so on the one hand, I quote Franz Fanon in one of my epigraphs, who says that every human problem cries out to be considered on the basis of time. Right? And so on the one hand, there is the insight that once we talk about subjectivity, selfhood, uh, kind of what it means to be human, and of course it coming out of the mouth of Fanon, being human as somebody marked by race or colonial difference or gender uh, or other categories, um, it seems evident that questions of time are kind of at the foundation of asking those questions, of asking what it means to be human. Um, but then the second quote from Nicholas Abraham, um, you know, a Hungarian-born French psychoanalyst, um, who says, let us talk about time, fine, but whose time will it be and for what, right? So this question of whose time and for what uh, was intriguing for me uh, and kind of, um, you know, activated for me all these questions about what is the relationship between this kind of general human existentialist, if you will, question of temporal existence, but then the manifold ways in which time uh, has always already been conceptualized for certain subjects or for certain purposes. And so when I started kind of thinking about um, the manner in which time gets articulated or questions of time get articulated, for these two French feminists who were my focus of attention, Christeva and Irigaray, um, it became clear to me that for them, uh, time and again, their analysis of time was always tied to a critical analysis of um, what we might call sort of like a sexual division of temporal labor is how I speak about it in the book, right? So this analysis or this premise that traditional models of time have always been kind of oriented around this dualism between cyclical and linear time. That seems to be recurring, not only in the West, but in, in several frameworks um, about temporal existence. And the consistent feature of that dualism um, has been uh, in a variety of contexts that cyclical time tends to be articulated in terms of imminence, repetition, nature, uh, reproduction, procreation, and time and again gets associated with female subjectivity and female embodiment, female cycles, right? Whereas linear time gets kind of uh, hijacked, if you will, uh, 
uh, and articulated in terms of transcendence, progression, culture, production and creation rather than reproduction and procreation, uh, and as such, um, kind of marked as inherently masculine or, or neutrally human, but um, what that always meant was inherently masculine. And so it seems to me, it seemed to me that that we were sort of stuck in this dualism, and that this dualism um, could be mapped onto uh, a problematic notion of sexual difference as oppositional or complementary, um, um, and and where precisely masculine subjectivity always came to represent progress, transcendence, futurity, whereas women were perceived as sort of stuck in the cycles of nature. So to overcome that sexual dualism, it seemed to me then that one had to grapple with the temporal dualism or this kind of temporal, uh, uh, the, the sexual division of the temporal labor. Um, and in that context, I wanted to explore what it would mean to develop a temporal model that refused both the cyclical and the linear model. And through the work of Kristeva and Gray, I arrived at this notion of revolutionary time, which I explore in the book, that is thought through this question of sexual difference, that brings to the surface the fact that the question of sexual difference has actually always been there. Uh, in the background, when we've talked about time, history, memory, progress, but very often in an unacknowledged way. And it was time to acknowledge it and bring it to the surface, but also in doing so, unpacking, critiquing, uh, challenging that division. Yeah, I mean, there's this kind of constant theme of the book of trying to do the work of addressing the sexual division of, t- of temporal labor without reasserting the ideologies, um, making that a critical intervention into that division of labor. Uh, and so you actually ground the discussion initially in Beauvoir is sort of to show the way that she's both doing something She's pursuing a sort of feminist line of thought, but also getting caught up in sort of the ideology of linear time as the trans- the time of transcendence. Yeah, absolutely. The Beauvoir becomes a starting point of sorts for my project, even though I also move move beyond and past her work. Um, and the, the, Beauvoir, the Beauvoir seemed to me an interesting figure in that her emancipatory project, you know, has been so influential and important for for all thinking about gendered subjectivity in the present. Um, And the Beauvoir, too, actually um, talks a lot about time and temporal existence, oftentimes in terms of her discussion of uh, the sort of distinction between imminence and transcendence that is so important, especially in the second sex, but also really in, in ethics of ambiguity. Uh, and elsewhere, um, so it seems to me that it seemed to me that there were lots of resources in de Beauvoir's work for thinking this distinction, and yet um, it seemed to me, in terms of my reading of uh, especially the second sex, um, that she also fell short of moving beyond this dichotomy. Uh, that for her, it ultimately uh, um, kind of amounted to the idea that emancipation would entail entering into linear time, that accessing freedom and transcendence for women specifically, in some sense, amounted to sort of becoming men, right, or uh, entering into the position of men. Um, And it seemed to me that 
what had always interested me um, about both Kristeva's and Irigaray's work was that their emancipatory projects uh, always really refuse this trajectory, especially, I think, Irigaray, uh, who's much more also critical of the Beauvoir, you know, who oftentimes will say the Beauvoir refused to be other to man, and I insist on claiming my otherness in a way that I haven't been able to do, right? And that difference um, also kind of feeds into her particular reading uh, of time and temporality and the way in which this alterity that she wants to claim and reclaim is always tied up with alteration. Um, So again, alterity and alteration representing sort of on the one hand, the otherness in sexual difference and alteration representing the possibility for change and temporal existence. Um, so I wanted to kind of um, develop a reading of what is that relationship between alterity and sex terms on the one hand and alteration as the capacity for change on the other. And that forced me to think through the Beauvoir, but also move beyond. Right. And this, so this the alterity and alteration end up being very central concepts for you on the question of, of what is revolutionary time. So will you sketch what is revolutionary time? And clearly this is, it's both Arigre and Kristeva inform this. And then I was really interested in the way that you used the artist Carol Walker's work here too, if you don't mind kind of talking about why she's so important to your concept of revolutionary time. Sure. Yeah, so so revolutionary time, the name revolutionary time mostly comes out of Kristeva's work. Um, you know, Kristeva has since the beginning of her work in Revolution of Poetic Language, which you know, was published just about 50 years ago now. We'll be celebrating oh, wow. the 50th anniversary in a couple of oh, years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, Speculum and Revolution in Poetic Language came out um, sort of at the same time. And since the revolution in poetic language, Kristeva keeps returning to this question of revolt, revolution, uh, the revolté in French, right, um, which which she understands in terms of its etymological um, kind of literal meaning as a return uh, to revolter, to return to, to return to the past, to return to the body, to return to the affective registers of the maternal uh, and the semiotic and all of this. Um, So I wanted to take as my cue this revolt um, understood as return um, and then to think that in relationship to Irigaray's insistence throughout her work on the need also for a kind of mimesis as anamnesis, right? So a repetition with a difference, a kind of playful way of mimicking um, the same such that difference can be introduced. Um, so for both Kristeva and Irigaray, it seemed that in their work, this gesture of returning recuperating. Of course, it's a gesture that is integral to the very practice of psychoanalysis, and they're both analysts, of remembering as a way of also remembering, of giving body uh, or life back to that which has become overly disembodied and dead, if you will, repetitive, um, which, you know, for Irigaray gets articulated in terms of a kind of machine-like existence uh, because of the lack of sexual difference. Um, So I wanted to take all of these cues, all of these cues about uh, uh, memory, uh, remembering, 
uh, anamnesis and, and the logic of return uh, to think about what it would mean to develop a temporal model that on the one hand um, would not be forgetful of the past, would not be a logic of repression, right? But on the other hand, would not be one that would just be stuck in the past. So again, cyclical time is stuck in the past, male masculine progress uh, uh, represses the past. And my attempt was to think, what does it mean to develop a practice of returning to and revisiting and remembering the past in its affective embodied um, nature? in order to, and this is language that is very common in both Kristeva and Gray, uh, make possible renewal and rebirth, right? Uh, so again, the sort of practice of returning to make possible a different future. And again, psychoanalysis is sort of the obvious example of this, right? What does it mean to revisit one's repressed past in order to not be stuck and repeat the same neurotic patterns over and over again? So, so that was the gesture. What does it mean to begin in the present, return into the past, and by doing so, making possible something new, something unforeseen, something unpredictable? Um, Kara Walker came in because for both Kristeva and Ira Gray, in different ways, um, this practice of returning very often happens through aesthetic expressions, whether it be poetic language or visual art or music. So art and aesthetics uh, is central for both of them as, uh, you know, the sort of locus where this um, return to renew can happen, right? A form of sublimation, if you will. Um, but of course, both of them are very firmly situated in, uh, if you will, a kind of white um, um, heteronormative European context, wherein also many or if not all of the artists and authors that they engage are situated in that kind of European classic context. And so it seemed important to me um, in, in doing this work to also bring their thinking beyond that framework. And Kara Walker just struck me as an incredibly interesting artist to think about, both because she introduces in very interesting and important ways questions of race into this discourse where sexual difference seems to be operating in a vacuum. And part of what I wanted to do in the book was to also challenge that premise of both Kristeva and Irigray and kind of bring in both queer and decolonial and, um, and sort of frameworks from within critical race theory um, to think about the ways in which all of these differences, of course, intersect. So on the one hand, Kara Walker helped me bring race into the conversation, but also her work is just incredibly uh, rich in its capacity to engage in this kind of return, right? Uh, a returning that is always meant to force us in the present to face and be faced with um, the sort of dark side of our past and the manner in which that dark side, uh, in which our present is the sort of afterlife of that dark past, right? Um, such that, again, if we want to try to change uh, uh, matters of race and racism uh, in, in, the, in the sort of afterlife of slavery in the context of the United States and in our present, it seemed this was an interesting place to turn, uh, both in terms of the very specific way in which her silhouettes or her shadow figures 
uh, literally engage this practice of copying and mimicking mimesis as a way to make uncomfortable, to renew, right? But then in a different chapter, I also engage um, the piece that Kara Walker did uh, a number of years ago in the, in the old sugar factory in Brooklyn in New York um, with um, a very, very, very large sculpture made out of sugar. Um, and I tried to read that in the context of memorial art. So also the aesthetic practices that literally is uh, meant to activate a kind of engagement with history, with memory, uh, and where I wanted to raise questions about the the fact that in the United States there just seems to be such few memorials that uh, kind of explicitly grapple with that past, that past of slavery and of lynchings and of the sort of racist injustices. Um, you know, there are sort of no official or very few official monuments of this kind. And you can find Holocaust monuments all over Europe. Um, and so I wanted to think of that work of art as a monument of sorts, a fleeting art monument, because it's no longer there. It's been torn down, including the building that it was once in. But nevertheless, a monument that for me, when I saw that piece, um, did some really interesting work in forcing me to revisit and return and remember the sort of repressed of, of U.S. white culture um, or white supremacist culture. So there were connections there that I found uh, productive. And so I chose to include her alongside some other artists too, but she ended up taking a kind of uh, central role in a couple of the chapters. Yeah, it makes, it made a lot of sense to me as I was reading it, having encountered her art and the way that you were motivating this relationship because the book, your book goes from this sort of overarching discussion of revolutionary time into talking about the present and then a return into the past and then to the future. And for Carol Walker's work, the way that it's, it's sort of shocks you in the present about images that are both familiar and then rendered uncanny through her work. Um, so you sort of suddenly discover a past in a new way, as you said, this mimetic way that makes you, um, or can make you reckon. I think you mentioned the photographs some people took of themselves with the sugar factory sphinx that shows the way that some people do not reckon <laughs> when faced with her work, but then she makes a record of that lack of reckoning too, um, which I think is so interesting. Um, and this is, this is about your work about how to make the present present to us requires this return to the past. Absolutely. And I think also what, you know, what's interesting about Kara Walker is also that some of the critiques that, that she has been receiving over the year, um, also oftentimes from, from fellow African-American artists, um, have to do precisely with the very um, kind of risky manner in which the mm -hmm. kind of return that she engages also on the surface of it runs the risk of reproducing stereotypes and reinforcing stereotypes. And I think that that critique is one that both Kristeva and Irigaray, but particularly Irigaray with regards to this question of what it means to articulate a philosophy of sexual difference, uh, the conversations and debates around Irigaray's work have always been precisely that, right? That isn't her attempt to recuperate um, uh, sexual difference, uh, an essentialism of sorts, or doesn't it run the risk of reproducing very harmful um, uh, 
um, you know, stereotypes. And it does. It is risky. And the question mm -hmm. is, what does it mean to engage that kind of work and also move beyond just that sort of on the surface repetition of stereotypes to see, well, wh what new kind of discourse is it also offering? Which is precisely what I think that Walker's work does in very, very powerful ways. But it can easily be misunderstood and also easily misused. And one can easily uh, see how it's triggering for some people or how it triggers worries about, uh, you know, the reproduction of stereotypes and what that means. And so I think that there is a kind of playfulness with that sort of dangerous space that Irigaray and Walker have in common, although in extremely different contexts, of course, um, that seemed interesting for me to explore. Yeah, it's interesting because part of the risk is the playfulness with which they both sometimes take on their project of return. Um, but that's also sort of the necessary, it's sort of necessarily ludic. Is that the sort of philosophical, the psychoanalytic word that gets used for play? Um, there's sort of a necessity to the playfulness um, that they both use. Uh, it's, it can be a dangerous playfulness um, for all the reasons, the triggering reasons, the way that people won't get the critical edge of it and take it literally. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking through, because you have a chapter about Arigre's writing on Pranayama, for instance, which has undergone so much critique. And I think you give a very forceful account of why these techniques of presencing that she uses, including um, poetry and love, but also Pranayama is sort of, she sort of takes it out of context. It seems like she's playful, but also maybe not careful. Um, in the way that she's engaged yogic tradition. Um, and so maybe, maybe there's something, it seems like maybe there's something to talk about there about, um, about how we become present and sort of the dangers of, of techniques of presencing, at least maybe as a rigoury has used them. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting um, because of course this book is constantly sort of straddling the line of, on the one hand, trying to be a reading of Kristeva and Irigray and a very thorough engagement with each of their bodies of work. Um, but especially as it became revised beyond sort of the dissertation work into the book, it also, of course, more and more took on, uh, you know, the sort of what I make of all of this and my own voice and other things that I was reading at the time and to sort of navigate what does it mean to excavate their work, but also really move beyond it. Right. Um, and so there were moments like that when I had to make sort of decisions, okay, in talking about uh, these practices of presencing, for example, which I do in that chapter, do I stick with the, the particular examples that these authors are engaging or do I, kind of move beyond them. And at some point I decided to really go with what it is that Irigaray is doing to see where that took me. But I think, as you're pointing out, that there are also real risks in doing that because the examples that she and Kristeva too um, are using are necessarily limited and in some cases problematic. I mean, in the case of, of Pranayama or breath for Irigaray, uh, as much as there is much there to excavate, you know, there's also grappling with the orient the, the orientalism of her work in between East and West, 
um, and the manner in which I think, you know, she completely idealizes certain aspects, uh, aspects of yogic culture to the point of Orientalism yet again, right? Um, and it's also the case in terms of her discussion of poetic, lang- poetic writing, uh, but also love, um, that the articulation of those practices make them, uh, in some sense, narrowly confined within a very particular cultural context. Um, uh, and there are ways in which one could imagine many other kinds of practices that would bring us out of that context, right? So I was actually recently asked this very question, Sarah, by somebody else recently, by Lisa Shell. Uh, we had a discussion about my book, um, and she asked a similar question, like, what, what's at stake in these particular examples, and is there a danger of returning to them? And and I think I think there is. Um, and and perhaps the analysis would have been very different um, if instead I or Irigaray or the two of us would have explored, say, improvisational jazz music as a practice of uh, presencing or um, protesting together in the context of Black Lives Matter or, you know, so, so now we can move out of the context um, that she's confined to to other contexts where other practices of presencing um, bring about other kinds of logics. But I think that ultimately what all of them have in common, whether we talk about pranayama or poetic writing or improvisational jazz, uh, the sort of structure that they share and the structure that I think Eric Gray is trying to uncover and that I'm trying to approach in this chapter um, has to do on the one hand with conceptualizing presence as co-presence, so the constitutive relationality of a living present, of constituting the present as a kind of living present that also means living with uh, unpredictability, open-endedness, instability, uncertainty, uh, the sort of failure to control our actions or the manner in which they get taken up, right? Um, and, and also the way in which this presence as co-presence seeks to establish new beginnings, right? So it's a present that is, again, about renewal, rebirth, change, right? Whether it be changing power structures in the context of protest movements or changing how we hear certain sounds in the context of, of music. Um, or changing how we connect not only with our own breath, but with the breath of those who we breathe together with, those around us, right? Um, So the examples are limited, to be sure, and can be dangerous too in their limitation and in, in the specificity of their context. But they're also meant to uh, raise questions that I think can be raised beyond that framework if that makes sense. No, it does. And I I thought you did an amazing job actually throughout the book. It's interesting to hear you say that as you were rewriting it from the dissertation into the book, it was part of the work there is to not just give a reading, but to have your own voice. And um, I think you did that really seamlessly, like throughout the book, it's really clear. You mark these concerns, you mark these limitations, you mark where new work needs to be done in relationship to the concepts that you're bringing up. So there's this um, clear voice of, of critique and sort of marking where the problems are. So it is really interesting to hear you say that was sort of 
um, something you had to work towards in making the book out of the dissertation. It makes total sense, um, given the very different nature of those two projects. Um, but but it, it, it fully came to be in the book, I think. Um, um, well, and so on this question of presence and where you do get, I think, just a straight ahead critique is on your critique of Derrida's critique of the metaphysics of presence. Um, and I really loved this chapter. We're going back a little bit now in the in the development of the book, but um, would you just talk about that a little bit? It was just a part I really enjoyed, I think, having sort of, um, you know, taken in Derrida on this for so long that it was wonderful to read your your pushback on that. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think, obviously, um, I'm not the first person to write a book on time, and there has been so much work in the sort of context of the 20th century continental tradition, obviously in the wake of Heidegger um, and sort of phenomenology to, to think about precisely temporality and temporal experience uh, beyond just the sort of uh, metaphysical mores of a certain temporal framework. Um, And uh, one of the common uh, sort of, strains in that body of work is this uh, now very well-established critique of the metaphysics of presence, right? So the entire um, sort of tradition in the 20th century to move from being to becoming um, and to refuse a kind of ontology, right, uh, that that freezes um, uh, life or experiences in some kind of eternal, absolute form and so on and so forth, right? Um, and in many ways, Irigaray and Kristeva, you know, write in the wake of that tradition and uh, by and large agree with that tradition. But it seemed to me in comparing Derrida and Irigaray specifically, Irigaray rarely, if ever, explicitly engages Derrida, which is interesting, and, and vice versa, right? Uh, only very little. Um, but there is a lot of resonances between their work. But when it comes specifically um, to this question of criticizing a metaphysics of presence, it seemed to me, and Irigaray doesn't do this explicitly, but there is a way in which we can read her as uh, ultimately sort of parting ways a little bit with that tradition. And most of it has to do with the way in which um, Derrida has sort of, um, you know, inherited from Heidegger a certain kind of criticism of presence uh, uh, insofar as, uh, you know, traditionally philosophies of time have taken the present uh, to be that which needs to be rendered kind of um, immobile, right? Uh, Everlasting presence uh, or or absolute presence as being there, right? Um, And the question then becomes not just how do we refute presence or how do we avoid it, but for Irigaray, the question also becomes how do we uh, kind of bring life back to the present as a fleeting, ever-changing kind of moment in flux, right? And indeed, in thinking through those questions, Irigaray seems to suggest, she doesn't use this language, but she seems to suggest something like, this metaphysics of presence was never really concerned with presence because the present is the most fleeting moment. And metaphysics of presence is always concerned with the beyond and the absolute and that which is not here, but over there. So like God or the platonic idea or something. And these things are always already absent. Um, And so on the one hand, I take it that Irigaray would say, 
the tradition is not a metaphysics of presence. It's a, it's a metaphysics of absence. Uh, it doesn't deal with the ever fleetingness here and now. It always already deals with the final and the defined uh, elsewhere. Um, and if that's the case, um, then it seems maybe at stake is not the refutation of presence, but rather a reclaiming of the present that doesn't fall into the pitfalls of the logic of absence. Because part of the problem of this newly revamped metaphysics of absence is that it always already also depended on construing woman as absent, woman as lacking. Uh, you know, it's, it's the foundation of penis envy and all of the rest, right? Woman as that which is not or is not fully or lacks. So to rethink then sexual difference and to give identity to woman in a way that doesn't trap her in this logic of absence. Also for Irigaray, I think, um, entails re-engaging with the present in, in a way that doesn't put presence in opposition to absence, that is not locked in this kind of dualism, but that works itself out of that. Um, so that's one central claim that I make in that chapter. The other, um, the other claim that I think is important is a kind of critique of the manner in which the, the arch from Heidegger to Derrida have always thought finitude in terms of finality and death, um, mortality, right? And what I think is so interesting, not just about Irigaray and Kristeva, but many feminist thinkers uh, sort of in their wake, is their insistence that we have to think finitude in terms of birth, natality, new beginnings, um, which doesn't mean that we should stop thinking about death. It doesn't mean that we should stop thinking about death, but it means that we need to think both ends of finitude. Um, and so now re-engaging the question of birth and uh, natality on the one hand, uh, uh, introducing presence, not understood as the opposite of absence, but its own sort of manner of being in the world, combined with this kind of praxis of presencing that we just talked about, these are the three legs of Irigaray's thinking about presence that deviates, uh, I think, in interesting ways from Derrida's discussion of it. Yeah, and I'm, it's, I want to talk, you, you just touched on natality. I, I want to note, and you go to her in the end, just this sort of a Rentian flavor to some of the discussions, like your interest in uncertainty and natality, and then this distinction you make between origins and beginnings to deal with the past. And so when you got to rent at the end, it sort of felt like um, she was present throughout the book. I, I don't know if that's, was that true that a rent was sort of in your mind throughout the writing? Yeah, she is. You know, Arendt is for me, she's the thinker to whom I always return. <laughs> you know, I think, strangely, Arendt and, Arendt and Plato are sort of the... the, the, the the thinkers that I keep coming back to, and they never constitute the center of my attention, or rarely they do. You know, I haven't written a book on Plato or a book on Arendt, and I don't think I will. Um, but somehow they are always these figures that I need to kind of return to as a springboard for thinking. Um, their philosophies uh, uh, frame my thinking in important ways. 
Um, so in some sense, my own thinking begins with Arendt. <laughs> so you're absolutely right that even though, you know, she's mentioned at the beginning of the book and then I engage her primarily in the, in the conclusion, in my very brief non-conclusive conclusion about the future, um, there she takes a sort of more uh, central role as, of course, a thinker of new beginnings, right? As a thinker of novelty and new beginnings and as somebody for whom uh, the uh, the urgency of thinking futurity in terms of its unpredictability, uncertainty, uh, its kind of open-endedness uh, has been really informative um, for my project. And yet, of yeah, course, Arndt yeah, is all... Sense. Arndt is also always Sorry, a thinker. Yes, it just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, she's also always a thinker that I return to critically because, you know, she's not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. And as much as she's been so important as somebody who introduced contra Heidegger, you know, the notion of natality kind of in a fundamental way. Heidegger mentions it, but, you know, she thematizes it as the centerpiece of her work. Um, which has been so important, and yet she does it in such problematic ways, in ways that just repeats the erasure of the maternal body and anything that has to do with real birth. Um, and so, yeah, she frames the project, and yet, you know, there is the, there are these dead ends that I run into in my engagement with Arn too. Yeah, and so and and so you don't bring her up in the discussion of the past. Um, but it's yeah, as you're saying this, it's 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 helpful to know the the sort of relationship you have to her work to write the book. Um, and this makes a lot of sense to me. I feel like I have a similar relationship to Benjamin. I don't write on mm -hmm. him, but I constantly return to his work to think about history. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So it makes sense um, what you're saying. And so you make when you when the book turns to consider the past, you make this distinction between origins and beginnings. Um, and the importance of it, your emphasis for revolutionary time is on, on beginnings um, and sort of critiquing um, an obsession with origins that we find sort of ideologically and also philosophically. Um, and this takes you back to another figure. You said a sort of a framing figure, which is Plato. Um, and especially the Timaeus gets a lot of you you really engage there. So will you will you talk about this distinction between origins and beginnings and why it's so important for revolutionary time? Sure. So so in a way, you know, the the traditional linear temporal paradigm, the sort of masculine framework, right? Um has always depended on, you know, the two ends of the line, right? The beginning and the end or the origin and the end to use uh, the language that I use in the book. And so for, lin for, for the paradigm of linear time, arche and telos, the origin and the end, are sort of the premise for something like a line to take shape, right? And I show throughout the book that, uh, that you know, this framework, the framework that stresses an arche on the one hand and a telos on the other, cannot but reproduce a self-same image of the past. It cannot break away, swerve away. The cover of the book has this red swerve, right? Um, it cannot swerve away from its course, but it has a clear trajectory. It can only go in one direction. Very sort of erect image. Um, and 
the premise of all of that, right, is that the past uh, has this kind of absolute starting point, some kind of stable, idealized, absolute origin, right? And that this absolute, idealized, stable origin is one, whether that be God the Father, or whether that be, again, the sort of platonic idea, right, or um, the, the, the ultimate paternal creator, if you will. This is a very, very important image in, in, in Western culture. And so part of what it meant in this book then <laughs> to undo this discourse was to think about the past in ways that did not repeat the one, the stable, the idealized absolute origin, the paternal origin, if you will, right? Because doing so would reproduce the logic of the same, that that this philosophy of sexual difference is meant to kind of unmask, if you will, right? Uh, Where change is not possible. So insofar as the chapter of the past is a chapter about returning to the maternal, I wanted to make very clear, contra a lot of, feminist discourse, in fact, that that criticizes this tendency to return to the maternal as a tendency to essentialize, to return to some kind of stable material um, uh, place, right? And to think about the ways in which, for both Christé van Gray, returning to the maternal was always embedded in this framework of attempted to undo the one absolute origin. And uh, for both of them in different ways, this happens uh, in a sense by liberating the maternal from its morse of essence um, and to think of the maternal um, as a kind of temporal generating uh, uh, creative principle. And as a temporal generating creative principle of birth and new beginnings, uh, it also ultimately, on my reading, um, kind of challenges this notion of the one origin, right? That we cannot think just the paternal principle. And indeed, in in Plato's Timaeus, this becomes articulated because the paternal demiurge cannot create the world single-handedly. He needs Cora. He needs... Uh, this sort of receptacle, uh, as Plato puts it, right, which is something that reorganizes and reshuffles uh, the structure of the world in such a way that something new can appear. Um, so it's a matter of, of um, uh, bringing plurality and heterogeneity to bear to our beginnings. And I found the specific distinction between origins and beginnings comes from Irgray's work, where in the French, and it's, it, it gets lost in the English translation, but where in the French, she sometimes uses the language of commencement and sometimes the language of origine. And once you start thinking about when she uses which, it becomes clear that these, these have very, very distinct meanings for her. And where, where l'origine kind of uh, holds this masculine one uh, meaning, whereas commencement has the potential of the plural beginnings, of the beginnings that are always already at least, as I tend to put it in the book, at least two. Um, so, so yeah, so what's at stake is a kind of critique of that archaism. 
And at stake, therefore, is also an insistence that the return that is involved in revolutionary time is never and must never be a return to a kind of idealized, stable past. It's always a return to something dynamic for the sake of dynamic uh, uh, or, or kind of dynamism of sorts. It's not about retrieving, you know, the truth or the origins. Uh, it's engaging a loss and, and again, remembering, right? Giving body back to. Um, yeah, I mean, because part of the point that you make is about, and you do this through the Timaeus, but it appears, I think, in other places about the temporality of, of material, um, <laughs> right? The bodies have are temporal. And um, I thought about this a lot, the way you talked about sort of like the maternal body as itself a temporal um, a temporal body, right? And so that the subject, whatever, whatever the maternal body is, whatever that, however we want to describe that, we have to describe it temporally. Um, and so it's not singular or unified. Um, and so like this sort of charge of essentialism doesn't stick if we're taking into account the sort of the temporality, um, even of what it means of like what literal gestation involves. And gestation itself being right a temporal process. Absolutely. And, you know, in many ways, the groundwork of that claim has been made in that critique of Derrida that we just talked about, that, you know, if, if, you, if you now, so if you want to re-temporalize the present by way of bringing attention to birth and natality and new beginnings, there is a kind of trajectory there, right? Now we've already inscribed into the very structure of time this insistence and emphasis on birth and birth as not a sort of creatso uh, ex nihilo, right? Not just making something out of nothing, but gestation as, you know, a very messy, ambiguous, you know, for those of us who have gestated, <laughs> you know, um, we know that, that this is an embodied and acutely nonlinear process, but also by no means some kind of cyclical repetitive uh, process. It's not about reproducing the same in oneself, same image, you know, our offspring is uniquely different from us. Um, and this matters. Um, and it is so precisely because it's not just, you know, the divine creation of something in its own image, but because it is this messy embodied uh, thing that involves, you know, more than one uh, to happen. Uh, and it involves two who are different. However, we choose to, to interpret that difference, right? By no means do we need to do it in some kind of heteronormative terms, to be clear. But still, that there are kind of at least two unique uh, contributors to that process. Um, and, I, and I think that matters a lot for them sort of uh, uh, shifting uh, the hegemony of the line. Yeah, it's this is sort of a funny aside, but I remember when I first discovered I was pregnant and I Googled, what do I do now? Like, you know, not, I mean, I was excited and it was planned, but it was sort of like, like, what's my actual activity right at this moment that I should be engaged in? And that's when it hit me that this was, you know, it, it, going the best way, going to be 40 weeks in which I was both doing this thing and kind of just having to go about everything else. Um and the, this, I, I had not grappled with the investment of time and the way that it would change me 
like sort of moment to moment and then sort of not change me at all sometimes or be, you know, there's a, a kind of funny experience of oneself, I think, or, the, or this may be how a philosopher experienced pregnancy, but um, where it was, it was an activity I was both engaged in and that I just had to let play out and that I could be involved in and that I had no, um, there was nothing for me to do exactly. Yeah. Um, and simultaneity, I mean, there, there's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot more one could say. I mean, you know, the the section on the past and on the maternal grew into this monstrous <laughs> and endless uh, section of the book. And at some point I had to end. Um, but there, there's a lot that can be said, um, I think, about the specific ways in which the maternal, again, however one wants to go about thinking about the maternal, and, and I'm the first to acknowledge that both Kristeva and Ray do so also in, in, in problematic and limited ways. So, so I have that section that speaks a little bit to like, okay, what mother, <laughs> who is the mother, right? And how can we expand what that means? Um, there's no reason that we should define that in, in narrow terms. But nevertheless, however we choose to define it, that this principle is um, kind of the engine uh, of the kind of temporality that I'm trying to um, articulate here. And, and this is yet another reason why there is inevitably some sort of relationship uh, between time and sexual difference, that, that they have to be thought together. Because however we choose to uh, define maternity, um, the sexuateness of the maternal body uh, is important, I think, um, and, and shapes sort of how we think change in this context or the renewal. Yeah. Um, well, so the last section of your book is about the future. So I want to sort of segue into what you're doing now as a question of the future, what your, what your next project is about, but um, also to give you an opportunity to just talk about like why the book doesn't conclude. You don't have a conclusion or you have a non-conclusive conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, there's the pragmatic reason that there's a moment where you just have to end the book and you don't want it <laughs> yeah. to turn into uh-huh. a thousand pages that nobody will read. And it was already a long book. Um, but then, you know, there is a kind of conceptual and philosophical reason, which is the insistence, right, that ultimately the temporal model that I'm trying to develop here um, is one that refuses to identify the future um, or to ideologize the future. But that part of the takeaway is necessarily uh, the unpredictable, um, you know, that's the Arendtian insight here uh, that I want to carry through towards the end. And so in some sense, it has to be tentative and brief because it can't be, I mean, none of the chapters are exhaustive, right? But this is by far the least uh, exhaustive chapter. Um, And I also thought of this project, as I said, you know, the reason I started it was I ultimately wanted to do the conceptual work of figuring out, okay, what does it mean to make change. And and so in some sense, this also became sort of like a prolegomena for any and all work that I would then pursue having to do with questions of feminist change. Um, in terms of my own ongoing and future projects, I have two big projects going on right now. I'm writing my next book um, will be on uh, the Italian philosopher Adriana Cavarero. Mm-hmm. So I'm writing, mm-hmm. I'm writing a monograph on her work Uh, which will be coming out with SUNY Press also, Um, and which tries to basically, you know, introduce a broad readership to her work, but focusing specifically on 
what I call her philosophy of singularity. Um, and so uh, really articulating through a series of interrogations into different pieces of her work and different concepts developed in her work, um, narration, voice, embodiment, sexual difference, uh, birth, uh, the maternal posture, all of them, uh, uh, I, I broach them through this lens of what it means to insist on singularity and uniqueness, uh, contrary to a kind of universalizing of human experience. Um, but the critical edge of the book, as much as it's meant to introduce Cavarero's work, and I very much want to affirm her work, but I also uh, am eager to kind of bring her work beyond, again, the sort of European framework that has it that it has been conceived within. And so in each chapter, I also bring her work into conversation uh, with um, sort of issues that she rarely touches upon. I have a chapter on um, sort of slavery and the aftermath of slavery. I have a chapter on... Um, trans lives and trans embodiment and specifically trans grief. Um, I have a chapter on sexual violence, which is something that she um, doesn't really broach in her work in the context of the Me Too uh, era. Um, and so each chapter on the one hand wants to sort of explain um, what she means when she talks about singularity and then also move beyond to introduce other experiences, other contexts uh, and bring them to bear on her work. Um, the second project, which I have yet to see whether it's going to be an article or a book or what it's morphing into, but I'm working on a project that puts into conversation Julia Kristeva with Gloria Saldua. And I want to try to begin to think about the relationship between French feminism and Latinx feminisms, um, specifically with regards to questions of, um, boundaries, the borderlands, exile, otherness, strangeness. Uh, so sort of foreignness in the borderlands, broadly construed. Um, and obviously these are two thinkers who come from extremely different contexts and who I think have uh, very different political commitments. Uh, and yet there's actually a lot of very, very interesting overlap between their work. Uh, and I'm interested in sort of teasing that overlap out a bit and see what happens in that, in that encounter. Yeah, I can't wait to read it to both projects, actually. Yeah, they're related and yet distinct, you know, um, but, but, but these are thinkers that sort of have been with me for a while. Cavarero I've been teaching um, for many, many years, but uh, have yet to sort of do something substantive in writing on her work. So I'm excited about that. Excellent. Well, good luck with both projects. Thank you. Well, thank you for our conversation today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for inviting me.